0: Well, Happy New Year! So I I realize that New Year's Eve or New Year's Day tends to be filled with reflections or we're looking back at this past year and resolutions for the upcoming year and I, I do not want to discourage that but I would like to inform us to do so with a heart of biblical wisdom. And so we'll be taking... A Sunday off from our regular studies in First Samuel and First Timothy, in order to study an interesting passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you can open your Bible, turn there to Ecclesiastes. Looking at chapter seven, so New Ears is always hopeful full of opportunities, and people operate as if they have a blank slate to write all their ideas, aspirations, and projects, and expectations. Uh, we learn and consider new ministry opportunities to serve in the church. We consider our, maybe a new career path or maybe a chance of getting a degree or advancing professionally, a new relationship that we want to invest more on, and maybe getting engaged. We consider changes we want to make in our lifestyle, maybe signing up for a gym membership. We make a list of the books that we want to read, and we mark our calendars with the trips that we have planned and the events that we want to attend, the vacation time off that we want to take from work, and so on. Even those that are not bought into this whole resolution thing, um, they find themselves having to make plans and choose between one thing and another for the upcoming year. So there are many opportunities and choices to make. How can we establish which one is better? Or can we know that each plan we make will really happen. Our text in Ecclesiastes today will propose to answer these questions. So I want you to turn to chapter 6, verse 10. Uh, This is a, if you're familiar with Ecclesiastes, it can sound a little bit pessimistic kind of book. And um, Solomon is later, uh, in, in age, he is an experienced man. He is looking back to his folly and the things that he'd done wrong and the things that he learned from those mistakes. And so he is, he's reflecting. And this is kind of a, a, a turning point for the book. It's kind of halfway through it. Ecclesiastes 6-10 to 10, 10 and 12 begins the second half of the book and looks back at important themes like the meaning of life. Uh, finding satisfaction in the things that you do in life fulfillment. Uh, the word that you will listen again and again is vanity. Right? Vanity of vanities. Uh, it's the word in Hebrew "revel, which basically is a, a breath. You know, in the winter time when you just you breathe out, and you can see the air and it's gone. So it's, it's brief, it's like a breath. It's referring to the brevity of the human life. And, and he talks also about what are the things that are profitable or advantageous for us to pursue. The verse is also introduced important ideas in the second half of the book, such as people's limited ability to know or discern what will happen in the future. The proverbs in chapter seven. Then he turns into um, a more of like a proverbs setting. In some of your Bibles you will notice that distinction. That chapter six is prose, and then chapter seven is more like a proverbs format. The writer of this book also asks two questions: Who knows what is good for a person? What is better? Which, in, in making decisions for this upcoming year, and I'm applying here already, um, which decisions are the best? And the second question is, how can you tell what will happen in the future? The Proverbs in 7 through 1 to 12 then explored a question of what is good And verses 13 to 14 conclude this section by discussing how God's sovereignty intersects with our personal responsibility. So, with that said, with that in mind, let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse 10. And we're going to read all the way from chapter 7, verse 14. This says the word of the living God. Whatever exists has already been named, that it is known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. For there are many words which increase fertility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than a good ointment or perfume. And the name of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man, and the, li- the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is on the house of pleasure. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to want for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. And the end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days are better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. In an advantage, uh, wisdom, along with an inheritance, is good. In an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come before you with humility of hearts. Lord, we look at this text and we see all these different proverbs that seem a little bit disjointed, and yet they are here to teach us great things about how we ought to live and how we ought to relate to you. Lord, as we begin a new year, we ask for your help, may you give us humility of heart and And wisdom to consider how can we plan in the best way to glorify your name this upcoming year. I pray that you would bring conviction even beyond things that I have planned to bring today. And that you continue to instruct all of us as you have instructed me this week through this text. And we pray these things by your grace and mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so brace yourselves. This is one of the passages that I'm very passionate about. We're going to take a little while to go in depth into this text. And um, I divide it in there. If you have uh, an opportunity, you can follow the sermon with the outline that is in the table there on the side. And we start with a critical question, with a critical question. How do we know what is good? Our text for this chapter begins with, these questions, after admitting that there is insufficient information to unravel earth's anomalies, contesting against the curse and untwisting God's twisting of times. Ecclesiastes is really looking at a world that is broken, a world after the fall that has been affected by sin, that has unjust injustices, and he's trying to make sense out of it. And he says in verse 10 of chapter six, "Whatever exists already has been named, and it is known what man is, and for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he is. And there are things that are unchanged. And there is the one who is the stronger, i.e. God, that we cannot change what he has established. The questions come in verses 11 and 12 where it says, for there are many words which increase futility. Here's the word Havel there, the brevity, the futility of life. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow, for who can tell a man What will be after him, under the sun? So while there are three questions here, thematically, there are really only two. The first question asks the same questions in different ways. The more futility parallels the few years of a futile life, which he would spend them like a shadow. And what is the advantage to a man? What is good to a man? that parallels with who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime. So the first question can be summarized as, who knows what is good for us? And if I may apply, how can we know what is good for us this next year? And second, who can tell what will happen to us this next year? To both questions, we can add the phrase, during our brief earthly life. This brief or futile, as, he, as the author titles it, it, it is a vain life. It is under the sun because we can't predict how many years we have given to us. So the first question answered is answered in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, and then the second question will be answered from verses 13 to 14. But let's look more closely to these two verses here in chapter 6. He says, whatever happened has already been named. This is likely a reflection of Genesis chapter 1. You will remember that where God's sovereignty, author, sovereign authority is demonstrated by naming the things that he has made. He created the sun and the stars and everything in creation. This affirms both God's sovereignty and Adam's finitude and the finitude of his descendants. It says, it is known what man is. The word for man there is Adam. Sounds like what? Adam, right? And it is closely related to the word Adama, which means ground or earth. from earth man was created. It further affirms human limits because as man came from the earth, he will turn back to the earth. As humans, we seek to understand God's orders and their realities from which they cannot escape. And primarily, uh, among these, involves who God is and who human beings are. For we cannot dispute with him who is stronger than we are. There is a limitation. The phrase refers to God, and Solomon's point here is the futility and absurdity of humans trying to resist God and ignore his order. And he says in verse 11, For there are many words which increase futility. The Hebrew literally says when words increase, this futility, this brevity, this havel increases all the more. Arguing a case with someone whose power makes it unlikely that the case be won is futile. And wisdom dictates accepting the reality of the situation rather than pursuing the argument. A commentator puts it this way. He says, It is one of the great delusions of our time that the exertion of human power can change the shape of reality. We might try hard to change the reality of our lives, but we can't on our own. And certainly that is true when the stronger one is the sovereign creator. He adds, we can insist all we like with increasingly strident and authoritative words, and that reality should be different, but all the words in the world will not make it so. It's so appalling to me when I hear people saying, I determined this is going to happen. I declare in the Lord's name. How do you know? His word. Verse twelve he says, Who knows what is good? No one but God knows what is good in a final and comprehensive way. Though Solomon has already identified some things that are good, and he will continue to explore here in chapter seven. There is more to good than meets the eye, and human limits regularly prevents us from knowing what is good in any absolute sense. He says, "Few years of his feudal life, which he would spend them like a shadow." Um, that feudal word, as I said, a shadow, emphasized the short-lived and insubstantial nature of human existence in the world. And what, who can tell a man what will happen? Things are not always as they appear on the surface, and the experiences often taken on a different appearance in hindsight. Sometimes things that initially seemed terrible, y- you might look back at this past few years and you thought, oh my goodness, this is a horrible thing that has, has happened to me. And you look back and you see the good that came out of all of these things. A- and the same thing can be true. Things that apparently seemed wonderful turn out to be not that so great. Under the sun indicates that Solomon is thinking about what happens on earth rather than afterlife. He's not conjecturing, oh, I wonder what's going to happen after we die. He knows what happens after we die. He's just saying, how can we know what happened to us here on earth? We're put in this conundrum that our existence is brief and frail and oftentimes full of sorrow, and there is no way of us knowing what awaits ahead of us. So that leads us to the Proverbs in chapter 7, which uh, he gives us a proverbial answer to this conundrum. And I titled here as Know and Choose What is Better. And he's, he will give you here a, a list of things that we can pursue and that we can, we can look forward to. Instead of babbling onto ourselves and others, the more words, the more vanity. We, we don't want to be talking too much or as a hot air about what might benefit us in a few days of our transient lives. We come to verses 1 through 12 to listen to God's eternal perspective. Let's listen to what God's assessment, what is better is. If our lives are to pass like a shadow, like a shadow of a hawk swiftly flying overhead, ready to sweep down on its prey, what action should be to our advantage? Solomon then provides some pithy some proverbs using the Hebrew word tov, which is, I remember when I was in Israel, we would go and have breakfast and we would hear boker tov. When it was night, it was lila tov. So you know what tov means. It's good. And he's saying what is good. And that word there appears nine times in this passage. Eleven times in the whole text. He tells what is good for us and what is better than something else. There are seven better than comparisons in here which can divide into four scenes as we will um, touch on each one of these points. The first one is, here's what is better. Verses 1 through 4. A good name is better, there's a word there, the tov word, than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning. So I, I titled this subpoint here as Take to heart your own finitude. Take to heart your own finitude. In verse 3 we read that sorrow is better than laughter. It, it seems that Solomon is, is depressed and he's uh, just sad about the reality and that this world will face sorrows. He contends that pleasure and enjoyment are good, but also he affirms that what is good for a person is complex and cannot be reduced to pleasure alone. Sometimes things that are good for us may be difficult and and distasteful. And positive character traits often result from difficult and painful experiences. He then commands a serious attitude that accepts the realities of life and, lie and lives in the light of them over a frivolous attitude that lives in denial or of uncomfortable realities like human limits and mortality. He's not saying you don't hide death, you don't hide your limitations, you don't hide your finitude. This is a present reality for all of us. These three v- events are better because they help us to focus on our character and our reputation. In verse 1, he claims, a good name is better than precious ointment. I, I don't like the way that our translation did that because really it's, it's referring to perfume, something valuable. Um, both, you know, when you have a nice cologne that is expensive, that is nice. You just pour a little bit there. It is something precious, right? And, and especially during burials, perfume was a, a specialty. It was a, a requirement. So as Proverbs puts it, um, in another text, Proverbs 21, 22, 1, says that a, a good name is better than great riches. It is better than silver or gold. Uh, The title of this um, author, Alistair Chapman, biography of John Stott, Godly Ambition, fittingly summarizes points. He says, we should be ambitious to make a good name for ourselves by, and hear what it is, by glorifying God's name here on earth. That's how we built a good name for ourselves, is by glorifying God's name here on earth. How does a funeral help with this task? Is Solomon depressed here? Is he having suicidal thoughts? Who in the world would say that going to a funeral is better than going to the the house of birth? That's why we need to understand and apply properly Hebrew poetry. Much to the contrary, we just read here in verse 14 that in the day of prosperity, what should we do? Be happy! Enjoy it! So he's not being morbid, he's being realistic. At a birthday bash or a, a, a baby shower or a frat party or wedding reception, whatever the kind of party one might attend, People do not normally evaluate how well and wisely they're living their lives. Even the most celebratory New Year's Eve parties can be superficial. Do not underestimate the divinely appointed opportunity that every funeral allows. Outside each funeral home, God holds up his picket signs. Life is brief. Death is inevitable. So, walk wisely. And within each funeral home, every casket cautions us, redeem the time and questions us, how are you spending your time? What will be said of you when people gather at the house of mourning to mourn over you? Will you be remembered as someone wise or someone foolish? In in her brilliant song, Laughing With, Regina Spector just juxtaposes how God can be the goal of a God-themed joke at a cocktail party. But no one laughs at God in a hospital or in a war or when they're starving, or freezing, or so very poor. How no one laughs at God when the doctor calls after some routine test. On their plane, it starts uncontrollably shaking. We may add to inspectors' thoughts provoking lyrics that no one laughs at God when we're asked to sign the death certificate at the hospital, or when he's standing at the graveside watching a loved one lowered into the ground. As much as our culture is a culture of death, you know, we have violent video games. Um, we watch documentaries on serial killers. Nevertheless, we try to deny death when it gets uncomfortably close. We, we try to hide it from our children. We don't, don't let them know. Just shh, don't talk about it. We change to a smooth, to smooth out our language when we say compassionately, oh, she's passed away. Uh, she's gone to a better place. Or or someone with uh, that is more crude would say he kit, he has kicked the bucket. And his novel in the second coming walker. Percy writes, "The present-day unbeliever is crazy because he finds himself born into a world of endless wonders, having no notion how he got here. A world in which he eats, he sleeps, and works, grows old, gets sick, gets sick, and dies. Takes his comfort and ease and plays along the game, watches TV and drinks his drinks and laughs, as if his prostate." We're not growing cancerous, His arteries turning to chalk. His brain cells dying by the millions. As if the worms were not going to have him in no time at all. I'm not being pessimistic. Death is an enemy. This is what Jesus said. This is what the apostle said. But he's also an evangelist. Death, he says... Um, is the great mentor mentor, for diligence, for sobriety, for love, for generosity, for reverence, for humility. It, it teaches us. That force is the most profound questions to be asked, but mercilessly, mercilessly mocks those who sleep through its lessons. It, it breaks my heart when I see people just wasting their life with the frivolities, with endless life, endless hours of playing video games, of pursuing pleasure, and not doing anything worthwhile for eternity. Death, he says, is a great mentor for diligence, sobriety, love, generosity, reverence, and humility. Death forces the most profound questions to be asked, but mercilessly mocks those who sleep through its lessons. End of quote. Death is is like a detox clinic. It, It sobers us up. When we go to a funeral, we should think about our reputation. Who are we? What have we done with our lives? How will we stand before God? Have we genuinely trust the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ? And more so, as Christians, we should think beyond our earthly reputation to our heavenly resurrection. While Solomon believed in an afterlife, he certainly did not express an exalted view of it. As Christians, however, if we do not hold our hold out our hope for the resurrection of our bodies, we ought to be pitied, the most pitied of all people. After the glorious resurrection of Jesus, we're not left groping in the dark. We know for certain that our Redeemer lives and that he will, we will abide with him forever. As Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall yet live again. John 11:25. 25. In light of Christ trampling down death by his death, we see death differently. It is not an exit to extinction, but the entrance to eternity. True, our bodies are wasting away, but it's also true that our inner nature is being renewed day by day, as we pass through his light and momentary afflictions into an eternal glory that is beyond all comprehension. If your Bible mark there in Ecclesiastes, and turn to Second Corinthians chapter 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is really um, resounding what Solomon is trying to instruct us here. I'm not advocating for a pessimistic view of life. But I'm saying that in this broken world, we live in light of eternity, not of the temporary things. He says in verse 16 of chapter 4, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, and don't we know that? I mean, I, I got sick for a couple of weeks, and this body is dying. We might try to do everything we can. I don't have any terminal disease, just so you know, but um, it, it, we're dying. You know, we, we are doomed. But even though this outer man, this shell, That we're wearing is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary and light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. How do we compare? Better. What is better? To live in light of eternity. Why we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. but the things which are not seen are eternal. Thus, we affirm with Paul that to die is gain. We also affirm with Solomon in a way that we couldn't have never comprehended that the day of death... Is better than the day of birth. Why? Because it teaches us. It, it puts things into perspective. It, it redeems our days. That leads us to our next point here. In verse, um, chapter 7, verse 6, 5 and 6. It says... It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to listen to the song of, of fools. The key words to unlock this section really is on wise and wisdom. That is repeated really seven times in this next few verses here. Fools is repeated four times and the word heart five times. In Hebrew, the word heart has more to do with our thinking, the things that we fill our minds with, than with our feeling. Right? We, we live in a culture that's all about our feelings, which we are feeling beings. We we are. Can't deny that. We're also thinking beings. The heart is the place where reflections and decisions are made. Here the thoughtful decision is between the walkway of wisdom and the footpath of folly. In Ecclesiastes, the wise choose wisdom because the way of wisdom, while narrow and more difficult, is better. Here comes the word tov again, it is better In verse 5, he says, it is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than to listen to the song of fools. So first, the first advice that we're given here is listen to the wise. And second, avoid the song of fools. Just as wise people welcome discipline and correction because they understand the potential benefits, fools vigorously reject rebuke. And correction, because they prefer to party instead. Solomon has a creative way to describe this song, actually. He compares the laughter of fools to the crackling of thorns under the pot. We're in the winter season right now, so many of you have fireplaces in your house And you know that some woods are better than others to burn. In ancient Israel, thorn bushes provided fuel, especially in places where trees were scarce. So you only have these bushes to burn, and that's all that they burned. The plant referred to here in Ecclesiastes is known as spiny or thorny burnet. You can tell by its name. It would be very similar to tumbleweed. Have you seen it rolling on the side of the road? That, that's the kind of, of weed that he's talking about here. And these thorn bushes, they make crackle and blaze beautifully. They burn beautifully. But the fire is short-lived and provides insufficient heat to accomplish the essential tasks. The image conveys the idea of the silliness that erupts into flame, quickly dies down, and is carried up and up and away like a smoke. And it doesn't last long enough to warm even a thin layer of soup, let alone to cook a hearty stew. The songs and laughter of fools are superficial and they lack substance. You hear the crackling, and it's kind of funny that in Hebrew, the words there are, they have this assonance, the shh, you know, the, the crackling. And, and it's, saying, you know, it, it's, it's funny to listen to, it's entertaining, but it's, it's short-lived. The songs and laughter fools are of no use in helping us to gain a heart of wisdom, but they are of great danger to the soul. Most people like to listen foolish songs. We live in a land of silly songs. Nearly everyone has sung silly songs that dull our consciences to the reality of death and to living rightly in its shadow. Just the other day, I, I was... Uh, um, just paid attention to the songs that were playing at the gym when I was working out. And one of them uh, said, Listen to your heart because there's nothing else you can do. Just listen to your heart. Immediately, I remember Jeremiah seventeen nine, which says, the heart is more deceitful than everything else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our emotions are wavering. One day we might feel one way. Another day we might feel differently. We can trust them. Songs like this and many others, even even Christian songs sometimes, might be filling your mind with pithy saying that goes against all sound judgment. I'm not saying that you shouldn't listen to any secular music. That's not what I'm saying here. But I am saying for you to be discerning what are you filling your minds with. It's not just music. What books are you reading? What things are you watching? Is that contributing for your growth and discernment? Was it numbing your senses? These memorable lyrics, sustained by a good beat and a kid with a cool hair, do not get us to dig deep into the soul. So instead of listening to fools, then their trivial jokes or top 40 songs, we ought to listen to the wise and their unpopular but constructive criticism. It is better for a man to listen to the rebuke of a wise man. In Proverbs, and I'm going to quote just a few here, Proverbs 12 verse 1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. He who rates, hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 17:10 says, "A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool." Brothers and sisters, we all need correction. We all need people around us that won't hesitate to tell us when our thinking is not going right when our actions is not matching to our testimony, we need that. We need each other. In your line of work, in your marriage, in anything else in life, isn't that same thing true for you? It was true for Simon Peter. You would think of Peter, would have learned his lesson when Jesus rebuked him. Right? Jesus rebuked him. He said, well, I'll, never, I'll never leave you, Lord. Oh, Peter, you, you will deny me three times. And you think, well, he, he learned his lesson. He cried bitterly. But a few years passed. You know, after his denial of Christ, Christ restored him. But a few years down the road, Peter hears a, a knock on his door. Hi, brother Peter. This <laughs> Paul. I have a word with you? <laughs> Peter, what are you doing? You're pretending to be someone you are not. You, you can read all about it in Galatians. It says that Paul resisted to Peter because he was faking, pretending to be one of the Judaizers when he wasn't. We all need this precious rebukes from each other. With each rebuke, Peter grew. He grew wiser and in, in godliness. So listen to the wise. It is for your own good. That leads us to our next point here. Then you cultivate a heart of patience. You cultivate... A heart of patience. Verses 7 through 9. The phrase patient in spirit there in verse 7, he says, For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Uh, Wait a minute. Yes. And the end of a matter is better than the beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness or pridefulness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. So this patient in spirit is the central concept around which everything in his verses uh, orbits around. We all face temptations to impatience, don't we? It might be the quick fix as... Address in Ecclesiastes 7.7 7, for oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. That has to do with probably the loss of money when we're going through difficult times. Then even the wise man will be tempted to embrace something that he wouldn't otherwise think that is crazy or evil, Madness. And take a bribe or extort someone in order to pay off his debts. The proverb then describes this person's distress at being victimized. Even wise people lack sufficient wisdom to always escape oppression and its consequences. We cannot prevent. Yes, we should be wise. Yes, we should cultivate a heart of patience. But even that is not a guarantee that everything is going to turn out all right. Says here on verses 8 and 9 that the end is better than its beginning. What does it mean? Well, the significance of an experience is not always apparent in the beginning, nor is the impact of a person's life always evident apart from hindsight. An example of that is the stories of Joseph. I mean, the man suffered for years. And then he was brought to this position of great importance. You remember Ruth as well. Human perspective is limited by our own time-bound nature and our inability to see beyond the horizons of our experience. But God's purposes, however, extend across generations in history and humans cannot understand the various pieces fit together. Obviously, people cannot determine what is good in any ultimate sense. But beyond the temptation, the quick fix is the temptation to lose our temper. To get angry when things don't go our way. When things don't fit in our plan and what we had prepared, and how we envisioned it. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. A distinguishing mark of wisdom is patience and deliberation. In contrast to a fool's rash and passion-driven responses, wise people seek to understand the bigger picture and set experiences into the broader context. They suspend judgment until they have sufficient basis for responding and remain aware of their own limits, both of which provide protection against rash judgments. I don't recall exactly here. I think Psalm 25 says that we make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. Yes, you can Put all your resolutions in there. Yes, you can make your, put things on your calendar, but realize that there are limitations. Things might not go the way you planned because you're not the Lord of this universe. God is. You write them on a pencil. God can erase it and write in his own way. And then lastly here, our last advice given is avoid foolish regret and cultivate godly wisdom. Verses 10 through 12. He says, do not say, what is that the former days are better than these? For it is not from the heart of wisdom that you ask about this. To, to paraphrase this verse is, you all heard it. Oh, the good old days. All right, the good old days. People tend to isolate, isolate the good things from the past and celebrate the good old days while forgetting that the bad things happened in those good old days too. Such praise of the past proves our impatience with the present. You realize this? I'm going to repeat it. When we we're... Looking at the past and, and and thinking and forgetting that bad things happened then, we're really showing how impatient we are in the present that God might bring good things in these present days as well. So let's come down from our pride in the past pedestal and give today's opportunities a shot. You'll never know the end of a thing might be better than its beginning. Solomons commitment to reality includes a commitment to the way that the past really was. He also understands the importance of living in the present and discourages focusing on the past in ways that debilitate people and prevent them from doing useful work in the present. We get stuck in the past. Well, that's when things worked out. They don't work out anymore, and we're just stuck. I, I, you know, I think about people that are retired. You still have a life to leave for the Lord. You didn't put your Christian boots and retired. You still can accomplish many things for God. Solomon's commitment to reality includes a commitment to the way the past really was. He also understands the importance of living in the present and discourages focusing on the past in ways that debilitate people and prevent them from doing useful things, useful work in the present. He commands a balanced view that values the past and learns from it while being rooted solidly in the present, this is the time that the Lord has given us, and this is the time that we're going to use. Verses 11 and 12. Wisdom, along with inheritance, is good. And verse 12 says that wisdom is protection, it's an advantage. There's an advantage for knowledge. We all know that money has its advantages. If you have money, when adversity strikes, the loss of a job or the sputtering economy, a natural disaster, you have some shelter. You have security. You have that cushion, right? So similarly, wisdom protects. The wise know how to navigate through life's deep and difficult waters. The wise knows the wisdom of tempering the tongue of listening and waiting and attending funerals. Yet human wisdom without a right relationship with God gets us only so far. Ecclesiastes recognizes the advantages of wisdom and wealth, but also their limits. Uh, The word there for protection, it, it actually is the word shade, the word for shade. And it's often used as a metaphor for protection for that which is short-lived." You know, a shade is here, but then when the sun shifts, the shade is gone. The ambiguity suggests that the protection of wisdom and wealth is an advantage, but a short-lived one that does not extend beyond death. Neither wealth or wisdom provides the kind of ultimate advantage for which Solomon is searching. Yes, I do want to encourage you to make new year's resolutions. I do want to want, encourage you to grow in patience, to maybe seek some mentorship this year, relationships that will help you grow. To seek to grow this year more than last year. But more than that, I want you to leave with to leave with you the final reminder of our text. All right? And this is our last point here, a timeless reminder, a timeless reminder. Know your limitations and acknowledge God's sovereignty. Today we started our sermon with a critical question, how do we know what is good? And that question was answered from chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, but we'll end our sermon with the other question, how can we know what will happen to us Our last two verses will answer that. Uh, The second question really is rhetorical. We can't know. It's obvious. The tone seems negative. Who on earth can possibly predict will become of us this coming year? We don't know. Will tomorrow bring feast or famine? Work or unemployment? Prosperity or adversity? Happiness or sorrow? health or sickness, success or failure? What is the answer to these questions? The reality is only God knows. It follows that to God we must go. We must turn to him. We go to him not for the answers but for shelter on, under his sovereignty. Here's how Solomon concludes, so verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God, for who is able to restrain what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything. They'll be after him. God made one as well as the other. Life in the world will involve good times and bad times. But the author assures us that both happen within the framework of God's providential oversight. Nothing escapes his oversight. He encourages us to take advantage of the opportunities to enjoy In the present, rather than waiting for a future about which no one can be certain. Sometimes people can get so stuck in the present or so so stuck in the past or so stuck in the future, I don't know what's going to happen, that they don't enjoy the present moment. In the time of prosperity, enjoy it. Praise the Lord. Be happy, as he says here. We're not called to be miserable, grieving people all the time. We should also see that the verse is not as an expression of fatalism, because it says, you know, you consider that, but of God's sovereignty. That is, they exhort us to see the situation, whether seemingly straight or certainly crooked, as ordered and smooth. In the sovereign mind of God, uh, the Scottish Presbyterian Thomas Boston titled the book after Ecclesiastes 7:13. You know where he says here that we can't unbent what God has; uh, we can't change what God has bent. Um, we can't remove the crook in the lot of our lives. It's one of my favorite books. By this title, he did not mean that there was a thief in the backyard. He meant rather that things happen in our lives that we wish we could change. That we can bend over, but we simply can't. Boston writes, while we are here, there will be cross events, as well as agreeable ones. Sometimes... Things are softly and agreeable, gliding on. But by and by, there's some incident which alters that course and ingrates us and pains us. Everybody's loss in this world has some crook in it. We all have those areas. It may be health. It might be family members that we wish were different. But they aren't. And we should embrace those things. We can't straighten them, but God can use them to straighten us. In conclusion, we always struggle with the twisted expression of divine administration. Why, when the world is in the hand of a good and sovereign God, we ask, is it such a crooked place? Yet part of the point of the crookedness is to straighten us out. As Solomon attempts to do in the final two verses, in this verse, and Solomon has a Job moment. You read the story of Job? Because they reflect both the beginning of and the end of the Job's drama. At the end of Job, Elihu, this man, comes to to counsel Job, he says, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Then in chapters 38 to 41, God cross-examines Job with his creation. He says, you know, you want to see who is in charge here? Let me show you. God summons even creation to testify against Job's arrogance and ignorance and ingratitude. And then finally, Job in chapter 42, he repents and he says, I have spoken of what I did not understand, of things too wonderful for me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the year, but now my eye sees you. What Job finally sees clearly is that he could not see clearly. Clearly. He acknowledges that the Lord is lovingly involved in the operations of an exceedingly complex universe. That God's mysterious providence is too wonderful to comprehend. That human perceptions of justice are not the scales on which the righteousness of God is weighed... And that God has an inescapable purpose in whatever he does, even if that purpose is is never revealed to the creature affected by it. There are things that we won't be able to explain. Yet, Job lost his wealth. He lost his children. He lost his friend's respect. He lost his wife's love. Yet Job acknowledged, as Solomon does here, that God has made the day of prosperity as well as the day of adversity. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. He came to understand that both light and darkness, good and bad, come from the Lord's sovereign hand. Both are works of God. Both are to be considered we need to be reminded that we can't unbend what God has bent. That we cannot dispute with him. Who is stronger than us? James Weldon Johnson used in his 1927 book of poems God's Trombones," Bones and he said something similar to what Solomon says here. He says, "Young man, young man, your arms too short." To box with God. Your arm is too short. To box with God. That admonishment is given twice. In the final two verses of our text. Consider, consider. If you do not know what the future holds. We can only submit to you and trust. In the one who holds the future. As Martin Luther said it well. He said. Let us therefore be content with the things that are present and commit ourselves into the hand of God who alone knows and controls both the past and the future. On the good days, be happy. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. On the bad days, look to God and look at what God does. Consider the work he is doing. Trust in the Lord's sovereign purposes, knowing that he once used the worst day in human history, the day of Christ's crucifixion, to bring hope and happiness to the world forever. The man of sorrows is the God of joy. The saints who follow that Savior should rejoice with him always. Do you really believe that God works all things together for your good? then leave like it trust god and tremble before him ecclesiastes affirms the sovereignty of god and his ongoing providence and recognizes realities of human experience that call into ca- question god's goodness and concern for his people solomon's use of these proverbs that we just read should warn us against a rush to judge about god's governance of this universe Wisdom dictates that we exhibit patience before pontificating about what is good, about saying that the past is the only time that was good. The same caution that is appropriate in interpersonal relationships is also vital in our efforts to understand the meaning of life and the work of God and can go a long way toward delivering us from situations where we have to say with Job. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by your greatness. We are encouraged by your faithfulness. Lord, we want to look back and see your faithful hands working in every step in this church in our personal lives, in our families, at our work. And we want to praise you. We want to thank you that even in the hard times, the sorrowful times, you taught us. You are in the work of straightening us out. Lord, I pray that as we make our plans, we make them in dependence of you, that you who are a gracious and caring heavenly Father will care for us in this year of 2024. Lord, we love you and trust you, and I pray that you will be with each one here. Bless them. Grow them in godly man and godly woman in this upcoming year. In the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.